Feeding friends? Well, we've got one or two friends tonight. <laughs> Not many. Uh, continuing our readings from the book of uh, Matthew. And this evening we're on chapter 27. I will start reading from verse 32 and continue until 44. If you want to follow that in your Bibles, Matthew 27, verse 32. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down there, they watched him there. And set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. And the Lord had his blessing to this reading of his word. Is everybody else alright? Give me a wave if you can hear me okay. Is that alright? Yeah. Fantastic. Give me a wave if you don't want to hear me. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. In actual fact, you might want to just give yourself a little bit of wave because I know it's very warm in here. It is very warm in here. Uh, Jo's uh, studying at Morelands and, uh, and I know she's thinking about uh, what lies ahead. So uh, do continue to pray for her as she goes back there. It's, it's difficult. Having gone through that uh, myself, it's difficult to not, to, to sort of know what's ahead and how you think that through and to, to seek God's uh, guidance. Uh, so it'd be good if uh, Joe knew she had some prayer support uh, on, on her. So she goes back on her way in September, a few weeks' time. Well, it's probably one of the most well-known symbols uh, across the whole world, isn't it? Wherever you would go in the world, you're probably able to see this this symbol and people would recognise it straight away. There it is. I recognise that symbol. That's where I can get my McDonald's hamburger. The big M. That's what they would say. It's next to the cross, apparently, uh, the most well-known and famous um, symbol throughout the globe. 
globe. But no other symbol we, we know, uh, uh, apart from the cross, is more clearly associated with, with Christianity, is it? And that's what we're looking at uh, this evening. Not just because we are, uh, we're thinking in terms of doom and gloom on this gorgeous uh, Sunday evening, but because, as, uh, as has already been alluded, we've been going through Matthew's Gospel to see and trace through that journey to the cross. And there's so much more there than we normally, at Easter time, have got time to absorb. One, one week it's, it's Palm Sunday and we're all celebrating. The next Sunday we come back and Jesus has come back to life and we didn't know that he even died. So we've been looking at what occurs in that journey. The cross is where we've reached. Jesus being crucified. So uh, apologies in advance if you didn't know that was what you were coming to tonight and we're expecting a nice little soft blessing in this wonderful summer's evening because it's very difficult to do that at first glance when we look face to face at the, the cruel, harsh reality of the cross because it's horrific and we need to acknowledge that. The cross captures though the, centra- the central truth of the Christian faith, that our eternal life is secured by the death of another. Uh, you may well have heard different people from a pulpit or at the front of a, of a church or on a platform try to miss out in some shape or form the cross. We cannot do that if we're going to be true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Execution by crucifixion was devised by the Persians as a means of exposing criminals to animals of prey which would consume them alive. Now you're really pleased that you've come this evening, aren't you? Later perfected by the Romans as the most sadistic form of state-sponsored execution. Death on a cross was designed to be unspeakably painful and degrading. The criminal either being spread-eagled like this or maybe as uh, the form that we would usually associate it with a person's arms spread out and feet nailed together at the base. Nails were inserted in the wrists, not in the palms, so that the nails would not rip through the hands. Skeletal remains of crucified people have been uncovered in Palestine. So we, we know that that's what went on. And this is what Jesus endured for us. The cross would be placed anywhere from a few inches up off the ground to a couple of feet in the air so that people could have a good view of the criminal. The death itself may well take a couple of hours or a couple of days, during which time the victim endured countless spasms as they would pull uh, their arms and push as they pull their arms and push with their feet against the spikes to keep the chest cavity open for breathing, and then collapse in exhaustion until the demand for oxygen demanded renewed convulsions. I'm not a medical expert. I had to read that out very uh, clearly, but those of you who are uh, um, better qualified than I would probably know more of the harsh reality of that as well. The scourging before the crucifixion, the loss of blood, the shock from all the pain all produced an agony that could go on and on and on. Death, in one sense, for the victim was a welcome relief. And that would come either through means of suffocation, cardiac arrest, or loss of blood. Horrific. We've reduced this horrid means of torture 
to a piece of jewellery that you may well have heard the story on one occasion, a lady going into a jewellery shop asking for a crucifix, but can I have one, not with, one, with that funny little man on it. This was our Lord Jesus Christ that we see uh, portrayed on a piece of jewellery. Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ has reminded us, I think, very positively about the horrors of the cross. And from time to time on Good Friday in the evening, we show that film. It's for over-18s only, and I think it's a very good, hard-hitting film, especially for men that I think would tend to associate Jesus as being a bit namby-pamby largely because of the uh, weak portrayal of Jesus by the church, I have to say, very often. You watch the Passion of the Christ, no man alive can actually come to that conclusion. I've sat with other guys and they've had tears rolling down their cheeks. Not necessarily coming from a faith persuasion, but being incredibly impacted by what they have seen and witnessed. Having said that, of course, the overdone focus on the physical pain can blur the significance of the cross if we're not too careful. Jesus didn't necessarily suffer physically more than anybody else because others were on the cross a lot longer than he was. But of course we know that Jesus carried a lot more than even that intense, horrific, unjust torture. And we're going to think a little bit about that tonight, but not the torture itself, because Matthew, we read in verse 35, simply says, when they had crucified him. So there's something else for Matthew that is his focus. Uh, Chris read to us from a translation that's different from mine, probably the King James or something. I've got the NIV, you may well have a different translation. The, the more diverse, the better, because we establish a richness, I think, there, of what God's Word is for us. But there was uh, 12, 13 verses, something like that. And yet in terms of that physical pain, Matthew just says, well, when they crucified him. Matthew's focus is something else. So we're going to kind of unpack those verses a little bit uh, that are a true account, I believe, uh, with all my heart as to exactly how Matthew saw it and exactly uh, what occurred. But as with every other passage in God's Word, there's a richness of other truth here that's here for the likes of you and me. What, What is it, Lord, that you're saying to me through your Word tonight? It may well be just that, that Jesus suffered that incredible pain for me. May well have been caught up in just what Joe's caught our attention to already in that song that Stephen played before, uh, before I, I came to speak. That this God of the universe laid aside his majesty to come wrapped in human form in the flesh of Jesus, to give of himself for us. It may well be that something has already struck us in terms of that, that uh, illustration, beautiful as it was, about the butterfly. What a sadistic family you are, anyway, trying to murder flies, firstly. You know, we went down to this lovely, uh, that lovely illustration about the butterfly. I could hear people, oh no, I thought all people are not going to hear this. And maybe we've seen something of the reality of that for ourselves. Yeah, maybe I've struggled to be free from whatever it is I need to be free from. God can speak to us in different ways. Maybe there's going to be something, I hope and pray, through this passage tonight that will illuminate our minds and cause us, whoever we are, 
to worship this incredible Lord Jesus Christ. What's described then in Matthew is not so much the physical torments which Jesus endured, which were horrific, but the torments largely that came through the mockery which the crowd hurled at him as he hung there. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but... Oh, your mum said that to you as well. (laughs) And we all know what a load of rubbish it is. We get hurt, don't we, by what is said to us. But what about when we're isolated, when we're lonely, let alone banged to a cross, and we then have abuse thrown in our direction? It's amazing, isn't it, what can come out of our mouths. Many of these gathered in the crowds would have probably been those who would have um, been there at that, uh, on that Palm Sunday, declaring the wonderful praises, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And we've probably been like that, had all the right things flowing out of our mouths, and yet very quickly we're staggered at what can come out of our mouths. Maybe something quickly has struck you, Today, this week, you've got angry about something and what comes out, you you go to put your hand over your mouth and no sooner than the words are gone, they're out. And there's this incredible hurling of abuse. And of course it's made worse by the, the hyping up of the crowds all around. The passage that we have in Matthew is quite similar to Mark. Luke quotes something that Jesus then says to the crowds from when he was on the cross. John mentions that Jesus took his own cross, or maybe that was for a little bit before Simon took it on. He also, John also mentions that the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. And only John mentions that beautiful scene uh, where there's uh, Mary being looked after by him and him by Mary. And, and that, that beautiful scene where Jesus is still remembering his mum in need and his friend in need and the two of them were going to be uh, setting up family together but we're going to focus just on Matthew's account Simon is forced to carry Jesus uh, at Jesus cross I know we've got some holiday uh, makers here this evening welcome it's good to see you we're not going to force you to do anything like that don't panic about that but I wonder if if Simon was on his holiday I wonder if he was staying there for maybe the Passover. Who knows? We can, we can speculate a little bit, not to create a theology, but there's a reason why his name is down here. How did Matthew know it? It was Simon. How did he become that, uh, that uh, well-known, that his, his name gets recorded in the Word of God? We've got a little bit more in Mark's Gospel, actually. Mark says he was the father of Alexander and, and of Rufus. How did Mark know that? Did they think, hey, that guy that carried the cross, we, we want to interview him because we're going to write an account of what went on. Have you ever thought when that verse was read from Chris, hang on a minute, what was it like for Simon? Carrying that cross with Jesus close by, every now and then, probably wondering what is going on, every now and then maybe hearing Jesus utter particular words. What effect would that have had on Simon? Every now and then maybe Jesus turning through his blood-stained face to look and catch Simon's eye looking down. There's power in a look. We can only speculate what really would have occurred. What we do know as fact is that everybody who had an encounter with Jesus Christ was never the same again. We know that. 
it's speculating a little bit, but it's maybe uh, worthwhile just playing about with that speculation. If you um, I wanted to have a look in uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 13, there's someone in the church there that Paul wants to pass greetings onto whose name is Rufus, the son of Simon. History would be round about right. Well, okay, there could well be more than one uh, Rufus. That's true. But I just wonder whether or not this man Simon had something so capture him on that journey of carrying Jesus' cross where he ended up getting a lot more than he bargained for. He was going in one direction and before he knew it he was doing something else. And maybe that impact upon his life had an impact upon his wife, his family to the degree that his son then became quite a leading figure in the early church. We do not know but his name is there for a reason. And so is Rufus's name in Romans, in Romans uh, 16. Incredible though to think, isn't it, about that journey that Simon took. What about your journey? I know exactly where I'm going. This is my path. Many of you may, you may well be thinking, well, don't talk to me about journey. I'm well at the end of mine, thank you very much. Who says... We don't know what's round the corner, do we? At all. I've known people be very, very well on in years, begin a new ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. Over 80, over 90. I think that's fantastic. See, people that are taking the view that while God has given me breath in my nostrils, he must have a purpose for me here. If he didn't, you wouldn't be here. Simon probably had his life already cut out. Maybe. Something then cut right across that. And before he knew it, he was carrying a cross. Where are you going? What happens when that direction changes? When you've got your own agenda? Simon obviously wouldn't have had that much of a choice, I have to say, when a Roman soldier says to you, Oi, try that! You haven't got much of a choice. But maybe he got more than he bargained for. Golgotha, we read as being that place that they took Jesus and Jesus' cross to. Even if we didn't know what the word meant, it's got a beautiful ring of horrificness about it, isn't it? Golgotha. Sounds like the name of a heavy metal band from the, uh, from the 70s or something. It's translated here as being the place of the skull, from which we use the Latin form calvarium, what we call calvary. Oh, so that's why some people pray that Jesus went to Calvary and I didn't know what it meant. He went to Calvary and there he died for me. Thank you, Lord. Now you know. This is the meaning of the word. And it's good that we unpack that, isn't it? Why that name? Well, some people have said, well, the the hill that they went was maybe a skull-like shape. Location-wise, that's maybe debatable. Or did it refer to the place of execution where the skulls of others littered the ground? Well, I don't really care. (laughs) It doesn't matter, does it? It's good, again, to maybe think and get inside at the passage, but it must have been quite a horrific place to be known as the place of the skull. The condemned were taken to this site and there they were prepared for execution. 
Mark tells us in chapter 15 verse 25 that it was the third hour when they crucified him. And then whilst he was on the cross, he was offered something to drink. Maybe you've been sat outside this afternoon. I've been staining wood this afternoon out in the sunshine, working very hard. And when someone said, would you like a drink? Yes, please. What would you like? There was some chilled cider in the fridge with some, albeit quite flat, lemonade. But, that beautiful sense of refreshment, satisfying our thirst was wonderful. This was not a drink like that. This wasn't even people, I don't think, trying to dull the pain for Jesus. It was more likely to be another sick joke. If we turn back in the, uh, in the Psalms, Psalm 69, and verses 20 and 21. Psalmist says there, Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. It was something not very uh, nice to taste at all. Maybe there's something there of, of prophetic nature back in the Psalms. They then cast lots for his clothes. Makes you wonder who would have wanted those blood-stained clothes, the little that he had left. But that wasn't uncommon. John mentions about there being about four soldiers who each had a piece of the clothing, and then there's one uh, last piece of clothing, the all-important covering private parts clothing. And that was the one that they cast lots for. Again, back uh, in the Psalms, we see that there's another prophecy that's being fulfilled here. We can't read Psalm 22 without uh, starting with verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken uh, me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Who does that sound like? And then verse 18. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And they kept watch over him. I don't really know what that meant, whether they were just standing guard because of the the atmosphere that would have been uh, around there at the time, but it was whilst they were watching over him that I guess we have that record in Luke 23, verse 34 of Jesus saying... Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I guess as Jesus speaks those words to those that were there at the foot of the cross, we are those that he also says that to. We do some dumb things sometimes, don't we? We say stuff that we regret. Our thought life can be out of kilter. We can hide it behind a nice spiritual smile, of course. Our motives can be wrong. We speak hurtfully about others behind their backs, and if we've got an issue with them, we'll tell five other people, but not the person that we ought to go to. And Jesus from the cross says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we don't. We don't all too often, do we? 
And as he said that, there was a sign over his head. And you know what was on that sign? King of the Jews. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Signs were placed to communicate what crimes people had committed. I would have quite liked it to have said, there's a blank sign, there's nothing on it, because he didn't do anything wrong. Best crime that they could come up with, that Pilate, the Roman governor, could come up with, was this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Maybe as if he was saying to Israel, well, this is the only king that you guys are going to get. But he certainly wasn't able to list or wasn't willing to list anything that Jesus did wrong because he didn't have a record of anything that Jesus had done wrong. And then we've got the passers-by that hurled their insults from verses 39 and 40. Hurled insults at them, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. See that temple that Jesus had been referring to was it the structural temple, but his own body as temple. People shaking their heads wouldn't have been out of pity or empathy or sympathy or loving Christian compassion. No, not at all, but out of mockery, out of gloating and forced humiliation. That awful sense that everyone was against Jesus. And then we get to this group of people known as the chief priests, the religious teachers, and the elders. Those people that should have known better. Those people that were the high and mighty. Those people that knew the law back to front. Those people that were desperately eager, prayerfully eager, to see God's Messiah coming. And this is what they then say. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, those chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let's let God rescue him now if he wants. For he said, I am the Son of God. There's some interesting things wrapped up in those words, isn't there? Firstly, when those crowds were actually saying, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Hadn't Jesus heard similar words to that? Maybe a few years before. If you are the Son of God. Remember who said that to the Lord Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and verse 6, we find out who. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. This was the words of the devil. Verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written that he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands. There were the people there surrounding the Lord Jesus and all they could come up with was a repetition of the very words of Satan. So what were they more like? It's very dangerous, isn't it? 
And there we have people that were also gathered in the midst, those who were to focus on God, or ought to have been focusing on, on God's kingdom, God's rule, God's word, were in fact revealing the same deceptive heart as Satan himself. There's also, though, an implication, isn't there, that if Jesus were God, then he would not allow himself to suffer. Yet it was because he was God that he chose to suffer. And he did that for me, because I'm a sinner. And if Jesus had not done what he'd done, I would be on my way to a lost eternity. In fact, I was until he opened my eyes and brought me to repentance and enabled me to have faith in him as my Saviour and my Lord. I've failed him since that time, probably daily, but I haven't forgotten who he is and what he means to me. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. No, I'd be thinking, hang on a minute, theologically speaking, if you're the Son of God, stay out there! I need you to do that! It's a complete reversal, isn't it? To what the crowds understood their Saviour to be coming to be. To experience pain does not mean that God is absent. Don't we need a reminder of that sometimes? When pain comes our way? God, if you really love me, you would clear up my, or you would sort out my, or you wouldn't let me... Ever said that? Sometimes we can be incredibly ill and suffer an incredible incredible amount, but one has suffered more than us. When we suffer, we cry out to God to do something, believing that he should and must if he really loves us. Maybe we need to remember that God's purpose for his perfect son involves suffering. I want to be like you, Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, there's a part of our own walk which from time to time may involve suffering. Oh, I don't like that bit. I know, nor do I. There was pain involved for the butterfly. But the pain was crucial for the butterfly to find release and freedom. Until it dies after a few days, or however long it is that a butterfly lives. (laughs) Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. There's a verse here that we like the first half of, but not the second half. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Amen! I want that! Oh, there's not a full stop there. (laughs) And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. We can't have one without the other. And such was Paul's walk with the Lord and knowledge of his Lord, the closer he wanted to know his Lord, and if that meant knowing and experiencing a little bit of suffering was going to enable him to feel a lot closer to his Lord, then count me in, he says. I don't know that I've quite got there yet. (laughs) Have you? Have you? Or is that the time that we pull back? from Jesus being Lord, if we've got suffering coming our way. And that suffering can come in many forms, can't it? 
the death of a loved one, a terminal illness, a mental problem, depression, an ongoing sickness. Sometimes we're left with few answers, but we still need to trust the Lord that He knows what He's doing and He will work out His purposes. We're in a world that is marred by sin. As Dave touched on this morning, with our, all our uh, creative planets out there. If you thought that Dave was from another planet, you, you would have seen that this morning as he uh, uh, worked us back to uh, Genesis chapter 1. But he also touched on the fact that we, we then went wrong and the whole world, the whole of creative order was then knocked out of kilter. And we're going to be on the receiving end of picking up the byproduct of that in our sickness and suffering and hurt and pain. But sometimes there's an element of the Lord's purpose as well in that, and we've got to trust him through it. The religious leaders are totally blind, aren't they? They eventually at least admit, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. They wouldn't have admitted that before, that he saved others, but they do here. Maybe uh, when this was then recorded by Matthew, they would have then afterwards thought, oh, rats, did we say that? They know that he saved others, but he can't, they say, save himself. It's a challenge, challenging God um, uh, to act. is very dangerous, isn't it? Very dangerous. But one of the lines quoted here is still what we hear today from the cynical. Uh, Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. If he comes down, then they will believe. But if he comes down, they will have no reason to believe. Will they? The reason we believe is because he stayed up there and took our sin upon himself. If he came down from the cross, pointless to believe in someone who didn't die for our sin. We need another saviour. Are you with me? But people will say, uh, will say, won't they? God, if you do this, then I will believe in you. Where's the faith in that? God is saying, I ain't got to do anything, thank you very much. I'm God, you're not, full stop. You've got my word, you've got the testimony of millions. Trust my word, have faith, take that step, then I will make myself known. Isn't that your testimony if you know the Lord Jesus Christ? But still people would say, so challenge them on that front. The very reason to believe is seen in the fact that Jesus remained on the cross. People want a miracle, don't they? Before they place their faith in him. As if God's got to do anything at the click of our own fingers. But we can equally feel frustrated, can't we, at times when God doesn't appear to dance to our tune or answer our heartfelt prayers. God, if you were to do this, then I will do this. And there's that kind of like bargaining that can go on sometimes. I thought you said you loved me, God. Surely if you loved me, then you would... And we try and rationalise this in a very sort of small human way. And then lastly, we've got the robbers. They had been mentioned in verse 38. The robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. But then we revisit the case of the robbers uh, as well in verse 44. In the same way the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Both of them. (gasps) Did they? No, they didn't. Surely one... You see, Luke draws out something else. 
oh, we've got a contradiction there. No, we haven't. But draw the Gospel accounts together. It's fascinating. Because it seems to me that it started off with both the two criminals. They're hurling insults onto Jesus just like everybody else. And then suddenly the Spirit of God moved upon one of those criminals that hung there on the cross. Luke records that one of them turned to Jesus in faith, didn't he? Where he ends up uh, saying, uh, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in California, wherever, in paradise. Absolutely right. But that wasn't where that man started. He was on the cross, next to Jesus, hurling abuse. How many people are like that that we might know and we might think, well, there's no way that they'll ever become a Christian. In a matter of hours, this guy had gone from hurling abuse, point naught on the angle scale, if you're into that, to suddenly reaching point ten as a result of the incredibly quick activity of God's Holy Spirit. And reading between the lines, all we can see here is that for one of these, of these two, known as the dying thief. He starts with abuse like others. He then acknowledges a fear of God. That's a good place uh, to start. He then is confessing his own sin. He recognises that he is getting what he deserves. He's then recognising his own helplessness. And then his need of a saviour. And then, here is someone who can save me. Here is someone who is able to be my saviour. I don't know how long that journey was, but let's never conclude that someone is... Well, there's no way that they would ever become a Christian. You didn't know what I was like when I was 19 years of age, thankfully. I'll tell you what, there would have been a bucket load of people in churches that would have said that about me, and I dare say there are probably some of you here that would have even worse than I was at 19. And people would have maybe not ever perceived that you would have been reached by the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't pick and choose, he's got no favourites. Certainly no one is too bad for him. What an amazing God that we've got, haven't we? And wherever you are this evening, whether you're not, you're as far away as you think you could possibly get, maybe you're having a little bit of a stomp and a paddy, about, you know, being reluctant to come to Jesus, or whether or not you're on that journey with that, that dying thief. God doesn't care, but what he does do with arms outstretched on the cross is saying, my arms will stay open for you. Don't waste time though, why not come now? You know that you need a saviour. You know that you need your sin forgiven. You know that you need a new start. You know that I love you. You know that I'm here for you. Come. Come unto me. Let's do that right now. Father God, I get so excited when we see what you have done for us in a wonderful way, yet in a horrific way. Yet it brings me to my knees because I didn't deserve this. None of us did. And although we kind of understand at one level that you did this out of love for us, it still is mind-blowing what you went through, what you endured physically, what you endured spiritually what you endured in terms of separation 
from Father with whom you've been connected for all eternity. God, we couldn't get our head round the facts and the figures and the this morning that Dave was throwing at us about the different planets and how many million miles they were from the sun. How much harder is it to get our heads around your unbelievable love for us? But if it brings us to a place of worship, which is only right, then we say, thanks be to God. Father, whatever you have uh, spoken to us from and about this evening, may you root your word in our hearts. May there be that sense of your word bearing fruit, and indeed fruit that will last for the glory and honour of Jesus, in whose name we ask these things. Amen.